Punctum, a podcast exploring the creative practice of contemporary photographers and the bookmaking process. Coming to you from my Somerville, Massachusetts studio. I am Jay Sabella Smith, the creator and host of Got Punctum. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. I am Jay Sabella Smith. And I welcome to those of you joining us on our live Zoom conference and welcome to those listening to our podcast, Got Punctum. I began my photo book book group conversations to share ideas, resources, and challenges, to discuss the ways ideas move into projects and evolve into book form. A note about our format. For those listening to Got Punctum, you may access the visuals we reference by following the links in our episode notes that lead to a summary on my website. Following, you may also purchase the book, which I recommend is the best way to follow the few visuals that we do share. Following our unscripted conversation, we will have an unrecorded question and answer session with our live audience. This segment is not included in the podcast, and we encourage our podcast listeners to join in our live conversation when possible. I created this platform to engage and sustain an interactive dialogue. My work centers on concept development and isolating the dynamic elements of creative practice. As a curator, educator, and consultant, my medium is the creative practice and process. I'm especially interested in how our own observations and awareness show up in our work. It is why I created my concept-aware curriculum. It is because I believe as visual creatives, we have a responsibility to explore how we see and why it matters. I believe in the power of the photograph to impact individual lives and to initiate positive social change. So welcome back, Michelle. I am so pleased to have our third book published by your publishing house, Minor Matters, featured on our photo book book group. And the fact that it is your own book is very, very special. Mm -hmm. In reading, seeing, seen, being seen, so many flashes of insight occurred. And truly, I wanted to sit down and read it all over again to make sure that I caught them all, which I am sure I didn't. <laughs> so I'm sure it's on my, it's back on my list. Um, you have created a very unique object. It is like a walking and breathing classroom. I've known you for several years, and I believe it began in the basement of the Javits Center during Photo Plus. And then, of course, at Karakia, when we portfolio reviewed and taught workshops at the Palm Spring Photo Festival. At the last in-person Palm Spring Photo Festival, I wanted very badly to take your co-taught class with Dan Milner. And however, my schedule only allowed me to drop in for part of the second day. So I frankly missed your day, which really bums me out. Hopefully we'll have another chance at that. However, this book introduced me to you on so many more levels. In seeing being seen, you extend a lucid and candid synthesis of a life 
about, with, through, and for photography. I enjoyed many of your analogies, such as this is what you said, you spent your career, quote, hanging out in trees you wanted to climb, end quote. And when you co-founded Minor Matters, your mission included, quote, focusing on work that articulates the surface of life, bringing insight and cadence to the world we occupy. Michelle, you are a publisher editor, book designer, writer, photography collector, arts administrator, educator, program producer, curator, a wordsmith, and a poet. You speak of working from the fringes and in life and work, quote, taking steps of logic and leaps of love, unquote. Um, amusing, initiated by a question a decade ago, grew to be an installation, an exhibit, and a catalog. This book is a memoir, a tutorial, a history lesson, and it provides an essential yet often underexposed skill, how to read a photograph. I can relate to being a behind the scenes worker in the arts world and one who relishes creative collaboration, who's driven to understand how we see and why it matters. And also to know and share some of the specific joys and challenges of being a multi-hyphenate. We can challenge people. I love how you describe photographers as being in essence, lexicologists, constructing an alphabet. You take us behind the scenes from your introduction to photography in the Bard College Office of Publications. You provide a fascinating history of Aperture. You bring us inside positions within nonprofits and academia and woven throughout is the messy way life has of intertwining career and personal life in no particular order or fairness or reason. The way you animate the marriage of design, which is the process of visual problem solving, and you consider it alchemical and iterative as a practice, you marry it with the limitless world of the language of seeing of photography. As you point out, you are a polyvalent, polyvalent, you'll have to tell me how to pronounce that correctly, which is used in chemical terms, which when I looked it up in the dictionary, defines it among other things as quote, having many functions, forms, or facets. And they give the example of as emotion and love is a polyvalent. So, I am very, very grateful that you dedicated yourself to be a champion of photography and to provide this living tool to accompany us on our searches as we discover and improve how we see more collectively, both as individuals and more collectively, you have truly illuminated me. So thank you, thank you, Michelle, and welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. And I, I have our cover up 
And that's where I was going to begin because from the very start, you're a teaching tool. I was not familiar with Will Wilson until I saw this image. And then of course your biography taught me about his critical indigenous photographic exchange, CIPX, which we'll put in our resources and how he uses the wet collodion process to pioneer something called a talking tintypes practice and a project. So my, my opening is, did uh, we just have to unpack it? Like uh, it's an idea that came and it was this query. Can you bring us through the etiology and the building of the idea? Of the book itself? Yeah. I mean, well, not. I mean, it ev- started, it very much started as an exhibition. And it mm-hmm. started as an exhibition. And I think this is an important distinction. It started as an exhibition for a heritage museum, not mm-hmm. an art museum. Mm-hmm. And I kept trying to steer them toward, I'll, I'll loan you some photographs. I'll curate a show of photography for you. Um, happy, happy to do that. And Nancy McKay, who wrote the afterward, uh, who was the curator at the time is now the executive director of the museum, was very adamant that what she wanted and why she, she chose me uh, was, was a personal connection to creative practice and that that needed to be what centered what was installed. And it was a great, um, I mean, I think it's a life exercise for anyone, regardless of, of where you are and what you've done to, you know, take 16 feet and say, how would you describe your life in this finite period of space? Um, it was a real. it just, it was an incredible creative exercise. And, and I went through many, many rounds of that because the museum was being built. So they actually were speaking with me about this two years before the exhibition happened, uh, which was unfortunately a lot of time to think about and dive through and try different image sequences and think about how actual physical photographs and the books interacted. And, and then in 2019, the museum opened, we did the, the installation, um, had, which I write a little bit about, had this very bizarre moment where um, at the last minute, the day before the show was opening, I realized that I should let the photographers whose prints were in the show know, because that's a courtesy. Um, and Carrie May Weems wrote me back and said, oh, I'm gonna be in Seattle tomorrow. I'd love to see the installation. And so it was this, just great. And that's sort of, it was such a, it was such a common, oh, of course you will be right. Like, because that's how, that's how life works. So, uh, and um, I stumble a little bit on this. The honest reason I started with the idea of making a catalog was that I didn't entirely love what the installation looked like. Mm-hmm. It was too mm-hmm. full for my aesthetic taste. Um, again, it was not an art museum and that is the environment that, you know, a little more walled, pristine. Um, this had 30 books and 14 photographs. And, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll make a little catalog. So in my own head, I have something that looks the way I, I wanted it to look. And I sent just the photographs to Sylvia Plahi, who was in, who had work in the exhibition and is a friend and someone I deeply trust and who speaks the truth. So she would say, 
who cares that you're putting these pictures together? And she said, oh, this is kind of interesting to see the resonance between the actual photographs. And, and that was the beginning. And then COVID happened and I had more time than I usually have. So I took the extended captions that I'd started with for the exhibition and, and kept going. Wow. I, I thought often as I was reading it, like what a deep dive and what a um, threading from so many different places. It, it really does deserve a second read because it was a lot of information and, um, and really, truly fascinating. Um, I'm, I I'm, did not put in a photograph here of the end papers, but I loved that. If you want to describe them, uh, yes. So please do. Two things. I had uh, I had two readers and two additional editors on the project because when you come from public things, uh, you you know that you need the viewpoints and feedback from other people, and I had started with a timeline that was the history of, of technology from the 80s onward for cameras and computers and weaving in the history of photography with my grandparents in India and Burma and Ireland. And it was this like, it was sort of a synopsis of the entire story in this timeline. And I loved it, thought it was amazing. And my readers were like, you don't need this, take this out. This is so confusing. Was your grandfather part of the origins of the history of photography? No, take it out. And, wow. and that made me really sad because I, I think the notion of time is a fascinating one. And when you study history and you understand what was happening in 1839 in photography and then what was happening in, in the history of my ancestors and how they, they connect. So very begrudgingly, I listened to the smart people that I had brought in. But I wasn't willing to let go of the timeline because I think what's also important about the book and, and all of the books that we produce through Minor Matters, we speak of as contributions to the histories of our future, right? We are looking mm -hmm. at, at people, at subjects, at ways of seeing that feel important to hold. We are inserting, we are inserting into the canon voices that might not otherwise <laughs> be held. Mm -hmm. And and so it, you know, it is a a sort of bold statement to say, I'm, I'm adding my, what is my personal history to a way of thinking about the history of photography. Mm -hmm. Photography has a very recent history. Um, there are not a lot of women telling the story of the history of photography. And so doing so from my perspective felt important. And, and I took it seriously from an academic perspective, not only from my personal perspective. So I kept a timeline on the end papers, but I simplified it. So the timeline that is on the end papers starts with um, the photo, it's the photographs in the book in chronological order mm -hmm. because they're not presented in the book in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And so for someone to see the relationship between Edward Steichen, Paul Strand, Dorothy Norman, um, I think it gets particularly interesting. So for instance, 1964, Sylvia Plahi, 1965, Bruce Davidson, 1968, Jim Marshall. So how these, you know, Paul Berger and Stephen Shore were making wildly different images within five years of each other. Um, mm -hmm. Robert Adams and Gene Richards were making wildly different images within four years of each other. And so 
this little snapshot from an art historical perspective Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but just presented again chronologically with page references so people if they wanted to look through the book uh with the images in chronology, they could do that. And so there are a lot of those little, I mean, I was a literature major um, and reading, reading Proust and reading James Joyce, there are many ways to tell a story. And so I have tried, even with the biographies of the photographers at the back of the book, and again, page references to their work, mm-hmm. for people who are perhaps less versed in the history of photography and the significance of many of the people in the book, I wanted to provide that information, but not have to repeat that throughout the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so the biographies was a way, including those, those short biographies was a way to do that. Um, it was also a place where one of my readers was a curator that I've done a lot of design work with. And initially I wasn't going to include any of the books that I'd worked on within this book. Mm. And she, she pushed back on that. And she said, if, if I am reading a book about your life and a huge part of the work you do is as an editor and designer, don't just tell me that I want to see it somewhere. And so again, I didn't like the visual clutter of books interspersed with the, phot- the photographs, the objects, um, but having those biographies at the back was an opportunity to include other books that I have designed or published or worked on. So, um, so it, it sorted itself out. Wow, I thought it really clever and it just underscores how much this is an educational tool. And, you know, I'm someone who has a fair handle on the history of photography and you had me busy. I mean, you certainly introduced me to people and leading the reading the biographies led me to new knowledge, but I also found it two really wonderful things. The, the, the end paper span 75 years, but you make the point of saying that images last much longer. And I thought that was wonderful. Like there wasn't any time when you didn't iterate something that maybe we think about, but we frankly don't say. Right. So I just kept underlining things and I appreciated your perspective on that. And because of all of those places that I described you have worked in, I think you have this collide kaleidoscope vision of where a lot of things are coming in from, like light leaks. It's really, really interesting. And um, you also with providing that, it did ground what you were doing narratively. Like I found myself going back and forth and I really appreciated, like, I didn't know what, I I honestly didn't know what to expect from this book. And it just kept surprising me over and over. And that's why when I finally got to talk to you and I just said, okay, wow. And we'll talk about it later because it's, it's, it's really quite fascinating. So I'm going to go to um, the second slide, which is actually a quote, um, which is on John Berger, um, from John Berger and his ways of seeing. And it says, seeing comes before words. It is seeing which which establishes our place in the surrounding world. The relation between what we see and what we know is never, and this is in my way, settled. Um, I 
think that you're tumbling around in that kaleidoscope um, seeing and really looking at it from so many different points of view. Um, there's another piece um, that John Berger also puts into the conversation, which is what you notice reflects the way the world speaks to you. So I'd love for you to spend some time um, talking to us about seeing and some of the things that get in the way of our seeing. Um, yes, all that. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I will say this out loud because I'm learning to get better about just saying this out loud. I, I know that a large part of what informs how I move in the world is how I grew up and my family and, you know, starting with a set of, uh, dualities or trialities from a cultural perspective. I grew up in a, in a small farming town south of Seattle in a rural environment. My mother uh, immigrated from Burma when she was in her late 20s. Um, my father's first generation Irish American. So there was a lot of cultural influences very early on in my life from the food that we were eating that was wildly different depending on which culture we were drawing from to living in, an, in a, a beautiful place where there was sometimes a mountain there was sometimes a mountain um, if anyone anyone who's been in the northwest it's a it's an oddity of speech that we have um, that other people find hard to understand but of course, the mountain is always there. Mount Rainier is, is always there. But at 14,000 feet, the fact that it can vanish completely behind cloud cover uh, and appear as if it is not there at all, I mean, that, that's, those are specific elements that come into how I see the world. And I think also relevant to the notion of subjectivity is my relationship with my brother and sister and the three of us knowing that we were not biologically related, my brother and sister both adopted, but we kind of look alike. We definitely speak alike. We gesticulate in similar ways. And the people who would look at us and say, you look the same, like you, oh, obviously, you know, you share these features and we would just nod and be like, yes, we do. And then other people would be like, oh my God, you, you three don't even look alike at all. And we'd be like, well, that's because we're not biologically related. And so we had these two clear sets of answers for completely different visual observations. Mm -hmm. And, and we still laugh about that. But I think that ability for me, that was obviously, you know, not something that was directly cultivated, but it took me to seeing in an art historical sense, an ability to say there are wildly different ways we can come at this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you start to talk about, well, what is, you know, what is blocking the, the process of seeing is very much relying on on our brain and on memory. Mm -hmm. And we all have had different experiences that inform that memory. So I think what I found the both the most fascinating and the most frightening is how often our brain is drawing on information instinctually and subconsciously mm -hmm. that we don't even know about. 
Mm-hmm. And so as I, you know, when I started to study reading photographs and applying a methodology that Minor White and Walter Chappelle and Nathan Lyons pioneered in the 1950s, because they saw that our society was experiencing more visual imagery and, and needed to know how the brain processed seeing. Mm-hmm. Fast forwarding to here and saying, okay, we're doing all of this work about inclusivity. We're doing all of this work that is supposed to be moving our society forward. And yet we're still fighting with each other. Why is that? Realizing underneath that, that this part of our brain, this front part of our thinking part of our brain believes things that is in conflict with what this memory part and action part of our brain is actually doing. Mm -hmm. And so that was a huge light bulb that we've got to teach people how their brains work (laughs) when it comes to sight Mm -hmm. and, and, and open that up. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't change the experiences people have had. I don't desire to change that there. That's the, those experiences are their experiences, but we have seen that the brain can learn new neural pathways. Right. So they, Mm -hmm. if, if you see something and your association with it is fear, even if that's an irrational association, you can teach your brain another association, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you have to know, you have to be conscious Mm -hmm. and acknowledge your first association, and then you have to teach it a new one. And to use photography to awaken those experiences for people and to see very quickly how it happens um, and to experience that myself, you know, to have mm-hmm. gone through photographs of Catherine Chalmers' pictures of the hanging cockroaches is a prime example of something that, you know, triggered a very real childhood fear Mm-hmm. But because I was in a professional context with somebody who photographed praying mantises and, and mice and snakes and all sorts of things that um, made me a little nauseous, I had to like get over being nauseous and just be capable of standing in her studio and then learning, oh, where does my fear come from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why do these photographs make me feel this way? And how can I see something else in them if I choose to? That became, that became really important. And as a designer and editor, if I'm working with people on books, I have to find something to like in their work. I mean, that was true even when I was being handed somebody else's photographs and had no agency in the projects that I was a part of. Mm-hmm. I had to find my way in because I might be designing a hundred more books in my career, but for that photographer, this might be their one or two books that ever existed. Mm-hmm. And it was my obligation to them to find a way into their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Cause I, I really come back to that, but, um, it's ironic because these are some of the places where you and I have synergy in actually how we think or what we find important to um, articulate. And when I teach concept aware, the very first part of it is this whole idea of getting aware, uh, being come, becoming conscious of the lenses that we wear 
because of that brain split. And, um, you know, you mentioned associations, huge. I'm thinking of assumptions. And you gave a great example of that, that with Stephen Shore, he had the postcards printed. Uh, it was back in 1971, but the printer, without asking permission, literally changed the color of the sky because aren't postcards supposed to be blue skied? fascinating yeah. right I, I mean and 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 I laugh a little bit today because the whole reason I asked Stephen for a set of postcards I said do you still have any was the printing element of of that um and a reminder like don't make don't make assumptions absolutely and just yes how how they show up right and and when you when you least expect it. Um, there was one other um, uh, tangent I went off on thinking of this subject um, about the um, seeing and what happens uh, in seeing and how intricately photography, specifically photography is such a tool to kind of crack open some of the things that we're talking about. And I always go back to Frederick Douglass because he was the most photographed person of his century. And he saw in photography that in an image and in this new uh, form of seeing, you can hold a space for imagination, that it literally is a placeholder for what could be which may be different from what is. And he purposely went about changing our collective sense of seeing as a black man, he was photographed and put his representation in front of more people to challenge assumptions and associations. Um, so you just, you've hit on, on, on so many people. And I just wanted to mention, because this was a question I had that um, you said that when you saw Carrie Mae Weems' uh, kitchen table series, you saw a place for yourself at the table, uh, more or less. And then you mentioned somewhere that it was the second time that you saw yourself in a photograph. And I have to ask, was that Barbara Morgan? No, there's a, um, <clears throat> there's a card a little bit later on in the book of a Mary Ellen Mark photograph from the Indian circus. Okay. And okay. I think I bought that card at the Seattle art museum. I think I don't actually know. And I don't remember, but it's in, there are pictures of my um, college dorm room at Bard. Mm -hmm, my freshman mm -hmm, year. Yeah. And that card is pinned up on, on my, in my dorm room. So I must've gotten it in Seattle. But that, this little girl is a contortionist and I just like resonated with her. Mm -hmm. And I felt like she, she wasn't where she belonged and she needed to come home. And so I brought the card home and, mm -hmm. and I talk about in the book that like, again, that was an instinctual action, but it really reminded me of we would be in grocery stores and we would see a woman in the grocery store um, who was a similar complexion to my mother. And we would go and get my mom and be like, mom, mom, there's a, there's a lady here who looks like you. 
And inevitably, it was usually somebody who, you know, had recently moved to the area and they were trying to find paprika or turmeric or something that wasn't typically, you know, in the grocery store in the 1970s. And my mom would start visiting and, you know, the person might be from Panama or they might be from Fiji or they might be from India. They were never from Burma or they might, you know, they might be black and had just moved to the neighborhood. And we made friends that way. I mean, she would be like, I know it's a little confusing when you first get to this little rural town and nothing looks familiar, but, you know, come over for tea. I'll give you some paprika. We'll sort it out. And, and that inclination, again, in the three of us, my sister and brother and I have often just like brought strangers into various like, oh, just come home with us. It's come over for tea. Um, it was, it was a really wonderful way that my parents kind of built community of again finding I guess I would say it two ways back then I would say finding likeness and now the phrase that I use most often is normalizing difference Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right that Mm -hmm. we're we're all in we're all here and we're all moving through the world that opportunity to say this person is not um is not an other or an outsider this is this is our community they're part of our community how do we help them with whatever their need is whether they're looking you know for a food item or they're learning the language or they're trying to navigate a new a new space Mm -hmm. Um, and as somebody who was born and raised in the united states and often made to feel outside of the place that i was born and raised um the normalizing of that sense of difference feels particularly important. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I love the term normalizing difference, and it makes me think of um, you could interpret that as those unseen or those othered when actually they are completely a part of our fabric and in substantial numbers, which is kind of fascinating because it makes me think of the books um, that you did publish that we also spoke to their photographer authors, India Beale's Performance Review and Jocelyn Lee um, uh, Sovereignty. So in uh, India's case, looking at black women in corporate America and in Jocelyn's looking at women's bodies over 50, acknowledging beauty and difference. Um, So yeah, kind of uh, what's hiding in plain sight, right? Um, Well, and I think there's also those in those positions are not hiding, right? uh, That's a wrong word. You're right. They are coexisting and not reflected. Right. And so that brings me back to the idea of normalizing difference. Like it's really a conversation Mm -hmm. that has to happen in the mainstream about the embracing of the totality of who we are as a culture, as a country. Um, And, and I think that there's been a huge shift of that really, even within photography that, that things that people just didn't think about, they are trying harder to think about. and that's, it's been fascinating that the conversation, I've had a number of conversations with people who are, who are dipping in and out of, which is really how I expected people to read the book and or working their way through the narrative. And they keep saying like, I didn't know all of this about you. Um, Absolutely. And it's like, well, we don't talk about this all the time, frankly, nor do I want to. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like part of the agency is that sometimes, and I have been accused usually by men I was dating of over compartmentalizing, but sometimes I just want to focus on like talking about the photography and being a designer and the fact that my mother is an immigrant or that, you know, I only drink Irish tea or whatever. Like sometimes I don't want to think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the privilege of the work that people did before me that, that I get to dip in and out of, of spaces and have conversations that are not always informed by the color of my skin, my ethnic background, my, you know, I don't have a name that ties me culturally to either of, of the cultures that I'm a part of. So, but I have many friends who do that sometimes you just want to do the work. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause all of that still comes with me. It's all still in me. Mm-hmm. I just don't always want to talk about it. And, mm-hmm. and at other points in time, it's relevant and you need to talk about it. And I think that that's part of, you know, there's a, I get invited. This has been true historically. It used to be about being a woman and now it's about being a mixed woman, but you know, people would every five years or so there would be like, we need to do, we need to pay more attention to women. <clears throat> so there would be a show and a panel and a talk and a whatever. And I got invited, you know, that year you'd be like, okay, it's going to be a busy year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get invited to do a lot. We are in women's history month, which I will acknowledge is an important part of why we're having this conversation. But then another four years would pass and it was like, apparently my, my viewpoint is no longer relevant until someone needs a woman again. And then, you know, these cycles that, that Mm -hmm. continue, um, as opposed to just saying, this is all with us all the time and Mm -hmm. it always matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's been this interesting little, um, kind of oh, we're trying to look at diversity in photography. I'm just going to say this so other people don't have to. I've had people be like, do you count? Like, I've just known you for so long as just you, the book designer, aperture lady, PCNW lady, minor matters lady. You also bring this other perspective. I didn't know that. Um, So it's, it's funny that as a culture of seeing within photography, where we have our own blinders like we see what we choose to see in people so um yeah it's been an interesting point of loving conversations revelatory conversations um but but new conversations for sure with Mm -hmm. some people I've known for a really long time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah wow I think it's going to be um engendering lots of conversation for time to come um, so I included some of the images. Uh, this one, I love that you have a, uh, yeah, an interactive relationship with Megan Reppenhoff, and that's very, very cool. So if you could tell us about that, I think that's really fun. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love in the world of photography is that, you know, your circle expands because the people you know introduce you to other people they know. So um, this is a prime example of Eric Johnson, Uh, who's originally from Seattle, who I first met at a portfolio review in Santa Fe. We both ended up working together in Seattle. uh, And he knew Megan from his nearly decade in the Bay Area. So when she moved up to the Northwest, he was like, hey, there's this amazing artist who moved into our area. 
and uh, did a studio visit with Megan, had included her work in, in a group exhibition and then in some other projects that we were doing. And this was a piece that she very kindly donated to the benefit auction for Photographic Center Northwest. It's a double-sided um, cyanotype. <clears throat> As she makes her own chemistry. She often works with, <clears throat> excuse me, the ocean um, and, and submerging pieces and, and aging them over time. And then some of her work, much of her work is unfixed. So the chemistry continues to develop over time. I was very fortunate to, uh, to get this piece at the auction. Um, this was right before 2016, was right before uh, her, her career sort of shot into the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and Megan is very down to earth and, and it's amazing when you get to see somebody really succeed. Um, so she you know, offered this uh, double-sided piece to us for the auction. And so I was thinking about for a long time, and Bill Christenberry teased me about color. I am a little like more uh, precious with color photographs because I'm afraid that they're going to fade. That mm -hmm. is a totally irrational fear for the most part, but I do carry it and I acknowledge that. Um, so Megan's piece was, I, I kept it wrapped up for two years because I was just like, I don't, once it, once I open it, it's going to start changing and then what? And then I was uh, hosting a party for, uh, for PCNW, for the, the board and the staff and the faculty. And so I tried to hang in my home as much work from the Northwest as I had. So I was like, okay, this is the time to open Megan's piece. And it was near the winter solstice. <clears throat> and so I just decided that that would be my rotational period that I would, I would turn it every six months on the solstice. Um, and, and so that started in 2019. So we're in 2022 now. And I usually um, take a quick snapshot and send it to Megan. Like, <laughs> so she has a little record of her piece evolving over time, which she thinks is very funny um, and likes that I have this like ritual of Time I, yeah. yeah and I loved love that ritual and so it must have been you just had to move it last week uh well I don't do it I only do it on the um oh the equinox summer. yes yes, yes I don't yes, do yes, it in the solstice I do yeah. it on the big I don't do it on the equinox but I do it on the summer solstice and the winter solstice so gotcha there you go so it's got a little bit of time to live with uh itself in that way um so I'm always brought back to this idea of that you really helped us see the evolution of your seeing. And I, I got a sense of it, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Um, I, I know that Michael Hoffman, the executive director of Aperture was a huge influence. And I feel like you admittedly said that after he was no longer with us, you gained your subjective eyes. Um, so I'm really curious and just, this is, um, I'm just going through and sharing a few of the pieces that are, are in the book, but could you tell us about that? And yeah, I mean, I think, and the, and thank you for saying Michael's name out loud. And I will add to that Steve Barron who hired me at Aperture, who was the production director for 40 years. Um, you know, it was very special and 
the to to be at Aperture when I was and to be working with people who had living you know relationships with Paul Strand and and Edward Weston and mm-hmm. Minor White and you know these were people to them uh, mm-hmm. not simply icons as they were to me and and to have trust and I think some of that has to do you know I was I was 23 when I started working there um some of it had to do with the knowledge of those specific people but to go into an environment where I trusted wholeheartedly in the viewpoints of the people who were around me and open myself up to learn even when I didn't understand and mm-hmm. um, so certainly the the series that really um was important that was uncomfortable was Amy Arbus did a series of self-portraits, black and white pictures in a bathtub. I didn't know who Deanne Arbus was. I didn't know these references to her mother's um, taking of her life. I just knew they made me deeply uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and I sat down with Michael Sand, who was then, um, he was editing that issue of the magazine. He's now publisher at, at Abrams. And and he talked me through it and there was no judgment. There was no like, you know, get over it or um, why does a naked woman make you feel uncomfortable or any of that. He was just like, well, they are uncomfortable. And so if you're having that feeling, that's appropriate. And I said, why are we publishing them? And he said, because they're important. Mm. And, and so that element of understanding that we were not there simply to look at pretty pictures, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to elucidate the world, to understand the complexity of what it means to be human and, and explore that in, in a variety of ways. And so that was a very specific experience. Um, and when Michael died, you know, he was 59. Mm-hmm. I really thought I was going to have the next 20 to 30 years to argue with that man. So it was, it was hard. And and I'm sure that's informed by, you know, my father had, had died young. Um, Michael was not a father figure to me in any way. Uh, But he was someone that I learned from and And so to have to go into the world with this knowledge, right? I had gained this encyclopedia without really knowing it just because I studied in order to sit at the table with other people at Aperture. (laughs) It's like, I got to bone up on this stuff. You know, like they all, they all, they all know, they talk, they talk about W. Eugene Smith as Gene. I gotta, I gotta know more, you know? And so that, that push to learn just mm-hmm. to be at the table and, and be able to listen knowledgeably. Mm-hmm. Um, when Michael died, it, it was all there, mm-hmm. right? It all came with me, but it was scary. It was scary to have to see for myself. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it was exhilarating. Mm-hmm. So when we were putting together the Aperture West lecture series and I had some agency for the first time in making decisions around, well, if we're going to have three to four people, who should they be? And how different is Lorna Simpson's work from Stephen Shore's work from G. Richard's work? You know, that that was so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that knowledge was there to be put into use. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was scary. Yeah. Well, and uh, I love that he really informed your connection to um, the seeing had to do also with what you were feeling and that whole conversation and curiosity, um, which is which is super important. I really, really appreciated this um, pulling from the book. Photography is a visual delineation of reality. Um, I thought that was was wonderful to consider and and kind of peel apart itself, right? I'd love to compile definitions, right? And how they change. So that one, those words largely come from Charlie Harbit. Um, mm-hmm. And for those people who don't know Charlie, we did a very important little essay book uh, called The Unconcerned Photographer. And that would be un- concerned photographer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a speech that he gave in 1970. And in it, he gives the most lucid description that's certainly of the time, but he discusses photography as a visual delineation of reality. So uh, I have to give, I have to give those words back in spirit Mm -hmm. to to Charlie Harbit. Mm -hmm. That's great. We'll talk about him again in a sec, because I'm just going to move us through. I love this example of Paul Berger's work because when I went to the biography and learned more about Paul Berger um, to understand that this someone is a professor emeritus who's been taking, been in photography since 1965. He's someone who initiated uh, teaching digital photography in 1978 and that you and Minor Matters published his first monograph, Multiplex, in 2000. 18. So again, this idea of the, um, the, the unseen and the complexities, and you talk about like, we're all going to be thinking on what he's thinking about for uh, years to come. Well, and it's interesting because you had picked Eric and Daniel's daguerreotype. So you know, Will Wilson's working in um, wet play collodion, Megan's working with cyanotype, Eric and Daniel started this collaboration in a residency we did at PCNW, making daguerreotypes together. And so that daguerreotype, and Eric is a student of Paul's, so it's like there's, you know, there's all these little circles, but the daguerreotype is, is a daguerreotype of a paper airplane. Like on one hand, it's like this hugely abstracted thing. And then on the other hand, it is this direct um, photograph of an object. And the paper airplanes started because Eric would have his kids make paper airplanes to keep them entertained when they were in the office while he was like having meetings. And he and Daniel were working together because he is an active parent with his wife. And so his son Sky would just be like making paper airplanes and they unfolded one of them and photographed it. And it launched this incredible series where they then started intentionally folding paper and seeing what would happen. But I just, you know, I love that, that the quote of delineations of reality was inserted between these two rather abstract pieces. Um, Berger's mathematics series from which this comes and which is on the cover of his book is just extraordinary. And when I sent um, his images in to Thomas Palmer, who does the duotone separations for most of our books, Thomas was like, oh, I remember seeing these in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like, 
thank goodness you're finally publishing them. Yeah. Um, which is very much how I felt also. I feel mm. really grateful that Paul agreed to do a book of us. Really, really special. And I, I, I know Marina and have been following Marina and this is such a beautiful piece that I'm glad is yours. And um, I just wanted, we have a couple of touch points before we open up for, for questions and answers. So uh, this one led me to want to ask you about, um, you had mentioned um, intentionality of scale. And I thought of that with Megan's work. I think of that with Marina's work. And what I mean and why I bring it up is that all through this book, that's what you're doing. Is it's like breadcrumbs, right? Like Hansel and Gretel. You're just dropping these things that I have to go back and think about and like chew on for a while, right? And then it totally made me very um, thoughtful about when I was reading the photographs in your book to check the size on everything. <laughs> And, and it's just so funny, these things that, yes, I know, but I'm not walking around like, you know, so that's what I mean. It just kept um, really hitting me over the head. So before um, we, we, we move to questions, I wanted to bring up your primer, which is so flipping amazing. Like, and I know that this also go back, goes back to um, Charles Harbuff and the work that he did and that you credit him on the back to that, but you put this together and I think it's intentional that you made it carry and go. This could go with you to an exhibition, et cetera. And it's also a, 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 a subtle hint to say like, don't forget it, right? You're not gonna take your book with you, but this can right. travel, right? Um, so this is where you get into the neuroscience and talk about that difference in the brain. I love that. Uh, diagram. So thank you for bringing that to, to all of us, right? To really laying it out, to giving us this accessible tool. Um, and so I have a question because it, it came up as I was thinking through everything else you made me think about. And that has to do with the optical center of an image versus the actual center of an image. <clears throat> so that, um, that passage is actually relating to book design. Mm -hmm. It's not about the image itself. But gotcha. It's about saying, for instance, like, so if you have an image on it, Sylvia Plahi, didn't mean to turn to a picture of me, but it happens. Um, so when you're looking at the center of a page, right, there's an actual center, mm -hmm. but optical center is not the same as actual center. And so depending on the margins that you've set for the book and where you put the page numbers, you actually have to adjust. And Michael Hoffman was also really great with this when we were doing exhibitions that he, when he would set the mat dimensions, if Aperture was initiating an exhibition and framing out a show, you know, they often would weight a little heavier to the bottom mm -hmm. or, or choose a vertical frame for a square image or even a horizontal image, which completely changes your experience of the object. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. because of where that sort of field of gravity, if you will, like we are rooted on the earth, right? We're, we're always coming down here a little bit. And so when you, when you push that image up, just it might be an eighth of an inch, right? How it sits on the page changes. 
So uh, maybe the, let's see, 127. The, there's, a, there's a four by five um, by minor white of nude foot. Um, and it is in four by five. So that's, there are a couple of places in the book where the images are reproduced at actual size. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. That image is, is higher up on the page, mm-hmm. right? The same thing is true with the Dorothy Norman, that if you put that in the center of the page, it's going to completely shift your experience of it, right? Yeah. It's not going to actually feel as small as it does. Mm-hmm. It's bumped up a little bit. You are paying more attention to the scale of the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, That's, you know, I do list the dimensions as you noted, which I'm thrilled that you noted, because as photography becomes more and more and more ephemeral online images that never get printed, which is the experience of this book we did uh, that just came out with teenagers, many of whom are seeing their work on paper for the first time in this book because they photographed digitally and have not necessarily ever printed their images rooting people in the photograph as object. Mm -hmm. These are objects. The book has been printed to create fidelity as best as possible to those objects. Um, And just, and again, because this is a history, this is my history, this is my insertion into photography's history. Those things were really important to me Um, Mm -hmm. that, that someone at least begin to imagine this as, as, a print that's on that's on a wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so important. Um, I I bring this in. I actually use this in my lectures too because I really appreciate the reminder. No two people at the same time. At this, no two people in the same place at the same time see the same thing. And it's Joel Meyerowitz's book, uh, Seeing Things, and it's a guide to photography for kids and and fabulous and something that we need to um to be constantly reminded of. And this, I loved your quote um, from your book where you said, if I slowed my seeing, a print would often meet me more than halfway. And I love that you gave the example. Um, I think it was um, how you entered the work and, and started to think of Stephen Shore's work and then William Christenberry and Robert Adams. And, and each time that you grappled with some aspects of your own seeing, it made you go back and look at all of them again, because you would see something else that you had missed. I think that that slowing down, which you, which you, um, activate in the primer, um, but our own, our own interaction with it, um, is just so, so important. Um, And I think about how many times I see people, I I can sometimes be, uh, because I'm whipping through maybe an art fair that you photograph a photograph, you're not really taking it in, you're taking a shot of it to think about it. Um, uh, But we just have a couple more um, visuals to share. Um, This one by India Beal from the series, Am I What You're Looking For? And um, I love that you talked about visual fidelity of an image. And I I wondered if you just would comment on that because you talk about honoring the visual fidelity. Um, Yeah, India's work, uh, and certainly we, the the press men recognized this photograph because they had printed 
performance review they had printed her book so it was great that they uh the next time remembered yeah. <clears throat> also because we spent a lot of time with performance review it was printed during the pandemic so I couldn't be there on press and it's a very difficult thing to to uh if you're printing in an eastern european country where people uh don't see a lot of people with uh different levels of melanin um to help them understand what skin tone looks like <clears throat> And, and that's a nuanced element that we, again, don't really talk about. There aren't that many people in production of a variety of ethnic backgrounds. And so, you know, India had expressed very real concerns about how people looked. And she was like, people can't look ashy in my book. Like, that's not cool. My photographs don't look that way. And I don't want the people to look that way. And, you know, that I understood what she meant by that. But how I conveyed that to a printer um, is a is an, a whole other matter. And so again, that relationship, it's kind of, I mean, not kind of, it is old school. Like that's when you, when people are talking today about the renaissance of the photo book and what can the book be and how does it go about? Um, I would likely fall into the camp and category of a sort of classic timeless not always experimental, although it depends on the book and it depends on the work. This book is very classic. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like I am a dinosaur. That's all right. Uh, I want I want the books that we make and the work that is included within it to always harken back to the photographer. And if that's a person who makes prints, I want what is in the book to look like their prints. Mm-hmm. Right? That tie, when I speak of visual fidelity, that's that's what I mean. We're in the business of reproducing a thing. There's this thing over here. Mm-hmm. And I accept that you may never see that. But what I give you in book form should be as close as possible. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the earliest days of Aperture. That's not, <clears throat> that's not what I think the majority of people making photo books today are thinking about. Mm-hmm. Right? Like their mm-hmm. intention is different. Their goals are different. And again, that's, that's okay. There's room for, for all of us, for a lot of different approaches to the book, but I, maybe that will change. Maybe I will cease being tied to the photograph as an object. I don't know, but, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't, it's not changed for me right now. For right Mm -hmm. now, I still care about the creation of objects and And it was not simply images. Mm -hmm. No, I love that you um, articulated and helped me to understand that correlation that you are still um, wedded to and, you know, open to maybe like, but you're, you're aware of it. That's the whole idea, right? The consciousness of it and how, how it plays out. Um, If you would just speak to after image, I thought that was also really um, elucidating in terms of what our mind retains and how that affects sequencing. Sequencing is so, I mean, I work with people sequencing day in and day out. It's very, very hard for the person who created the image. Um, and it's a whole other skill set. Sequencing for me is a, it is almost a, mm, spiritual process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to spend a lot of, for me, I have to spend a lot of time with the images and get to know them and speak with the photographer and understand what the goal is. Uh, and the relationship between images that when you, when you're looking at an image and then you turn a page, um, your mind is still holding some of the image that you just see, right? And so it's got that when it's looking at the next image. And 
And so for me, even though there are pages of text in between many of the images, the, re the relationships between them. So there's a, the Stephen Shore photograph of me graduating from college. The next image that you see um, is a minor white. And so, you know, my face is looking up this direction and then the minor white is looking down this direction. And so you have this like direct parallel <clears throat> purely graphically. Right? It has nothing to do so much with the content of the images, but there is this visual relationship. And, and a lot of that, again, came out of physically sequencing longer bodies of work. Um, I still sequence with prints. Uh, they might be printouts of small things, but I do it physically. I don't do it on the screen. Um, I may start on the screen, but in any book, I always end up printing things out and moving them around physically to see those relationships and feel those relationships. And um, I kind of loved when Sylvia Plahi and I went through the book when I finally had a printed copy. She, she said, oh, I love all this gray, like speaking of the words, the word pages. She's like, I love all this gray. It's like such a nice break between the images. Um, it was, I, I loved that. It made me really happy that she was just like, oh, I don't care about all these words. This, uh, it's just a gentle, even background to clear my mind before I see the next image. And she's like, I'll read it eventually. But um, yeah, it was, it, again, there are multiple ways of reading. And so absolutely. to look through first and look at the images and see the text pages as, as just a gentle wash of clearing your mind before the next image. Um, I loved that. Yeah. Well, we've got just a couple of other visuals. I loved this. So this is where you did put some of your books and I'm super glad you got that nudging and did it. It's really interesting because I was working with someone yesterday um, and mentioned this very fact, right? Uh, you know, it was like, could you put a photograph? And they're like, well, I put all the credentials. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. You need the photograph of the object with those credentials. Like it's another way to read. But I also love this because I saw all power when it was at APAD. And, and that was another layer of you. I was like, wait, Michelle curated this. Cool. And it was an amazing, amazing exhibition. So I love that this heralds all of these parts of your work. And just this biography, uh, this list of biography. Uh, my last thing is I typed up all of those people. These are the photographers that you reference. That's an incredible breath uh, and expanse and very exciting. And I learned a great deal. So I'm, I'm super happy. And I do want to give a chance for the people that are on the call to also ask you questions and, and get in on the conversation. And Lord knows, I haven't finished with you. So <laughs> you'll be hearing from me wherever we get ourselves together too. I mean, just all the things that you made me think of really amazing. I don't often have like an end uh, note, but it came up that I was reading um, yesterday and I think uh, I have an end note. <laughs> and it is because I was reading about Marilyn Albright uh, and her passing. And of course, I'm also watching and hearing and trying to stomach um, the Senate hearings for the confirmation of Judge Jackson. So I'm gonna do a quote from Madeleine Albright because I think it speaks to you. I think it speaks to this book and I think it speaks to this moment. 
And this is the quote, it's from her book, Prague Winter, A Personal Story of Remembrance and War. And this is it. I believe we can recognize truth when we see it, just not at first, and not without ever relenting in our efforts to learn more. This is because the goal we seek and the good we hope for comes not as some final reward, but as the hidden companion to our quest. It is not what we find, but the reason we cannot stop looking and striving that tells us why we are here." End quote. So there you have it. Madeline, thank you all for spending a part of your Thursday morning here. Yeah. Or afternoon, as the case may be. Yes. So thank you, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.